Well, believe it or not, I have to do another switcheroo with my messages again. This is becoming a habit. I could not preach the message I had planned on preaching at the PM service last Lord's Day. And the reason for that was because a lot of you took the bait to come out and ask questions. And you asked so many questions, I wasn't able to preach. And I was glad of that. Not that I was not able to preach, mind you, but that you came out to ask the questions. That was really encouraging to me. And I thank you for participating in the way that you did. Now I'm going to try to bait you again to come out tonight as well. But anyway, I couldn't preach the message I had planned. And so I'm thrown off stride with reference to this sequence of messages on church leadership. And please remember now, these messages have been prompted due to the need that we have for men to be involved in our, in our ministry here, as was emphasized throughout the past weeks. And also because of the fact, as I mentioned in prayer, we need five uh, new godly men to become uh, deacons as well. By the way, I think I owe the men an apology. You know, some of you might assume that I'm thinking that you men do nothing at all in the church. And that the men do nothing at all. That's not true. We have some men who are tremendously involved in the ministry. In fact, right now, our ladies are out there in Sheraton, sitting on the beach, <laughs> relaxing in the retreat. They did that yesterday. And our men were out there painting the wall. You see the contrast? <laughs> Women on the beach, a man painting. We have our men who are involved in helping our widows and our single mothers in, in, in our preparing homes and all of that. We have some of our men who are involved in an, an outreach for the young men in this area, uh, Friends Day. We have men who are involved in ministry in the schools for boys, uh, reform schools, whatever they call it. We have individuals, and most of them are men, who are involved in the ministry. And we thank God for them. So I don't want men to feel that because I say we need more men to be involved, that I don't think that you're doing anything at all. No, that's not true at all. We thank God for the faithfulness of our men. And by the way, have you finished painting the walls yet? No. We need some more faithful men. So you, I mean, you men who are not involved in it, please uh, come out next Saturday to help in the wall. All right? So we thank the Lord for our men. Amen? And we thank them for their involvement in our ministry here. But still, we need more involvement, male involvement, and that was the emphasis. So anyway, uh, having laid the biblical basis in our first message uh, from what I call God's church manual for leadership, and we saw emphasized there, and this is why many of the ladies came out because of this statement. We believe that the Bible says that men should be involved as the leaders of the church, male leadership. We believe that is true in home as well as in the church. And we saw also in the scriptures that we have two divisions of leadership within the church, those who serve deacons and those who rule as the words of scripture who are called elders, deacons, pastors, overseers, or bishops. They all refer to the same thing. Now, we were then supposed to give a 
historical and chronological study of the New Testament concerning every reference to, new, to uh, the pastors and deacons to show you the progressive way God revealed his mind for the leadership of the church. 30 years of the book of Acts are covered in the book of 30 years. And as you go through those 30 years, you see how God has brought in his mind, his policies, if you want, for church leadership. That was what we were supposed to do last evening. That was to be followed by qualifications for deacons because that's the men we're looking for. And then after that, we'll talk about the qualifications for pastors. However, I'm going to change the sequence now. I'm coming to deal with the qualifications of deacons today and the chronological study we'll do tonight. Uh, and I encourage you to come out because I don't think you'll ever go through another study in the church the way we're going to go through this one tonight. If you really want to understand church leadership. So, now that I've muddied the waters enough for you, let's get back to our schedule and the topic at hand. Church leadership, deacons. I begin with point B, as you see on the screen, because this follows my presentation of qualifications for pastors or elders. But we'll do that at another time. We're focusing on deacons because that's our present need at the time. But as you go through these qualifications, you will see that the majority of the qualifications for pastors, elders, deacons, bishop, or overseers are also true of deacons as well. Many of them overlap. And I will point them out to you. That underlines the spiritual nature of the work of deacons as well. Sometimes I think we make too sharp a distinction between the work, spiritual work and so-called material work. The Bible doesn't make it that sharp, although there is a division of ministry in the church. Let's look at the text then. This is the crucial text for deacons. In fact, this is the only text that gives us the qualifications for deacons in the church. It's 1 Timothy 3, and this is how it reads, verse 8. Deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men must also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons, if they are beyond reproach. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their own households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. That's the word of God. So all of the information, or just about the majority of it, that we need for qualifications for deacons are found in this text. Any text added or anything added or taken away from it is what man does, not what God demands. And as a Bible teacher, I'm here to teach you what I believe the Bible teaches, not a denomination or not tradition. That's why as we go some of this, some of this might conflict with some of the things you already know, or perhaps even some of the things we do. But I can only preach the word of God, and if you have questions concerning it, come out tonight and we'll fight again. All right? Now notice the text very carefully. He says, must be. Now do you see any place for an option there? 
must be. There's nothing else here that you can take away from this listing or add to it from a biblical point of view. Must be. However, sometimes when we read that passage, we get the idea that I must be that way now to be a deacon. Now that is true, but it's also not true. It is true in the sense that this is what we must be, but that must be gives the idea that a person could anticipate becoming a deacon and so prepare. In other words, it's an ongoing progress. It's something that we begin with and we continue to build upon. This is also true of pastors and elders, by the way. By the way, this gives another idea too of how people think about pastors because and, and, and deacons, sometimes it has to be a calling. You have to have an anointing. How many of you, how many of you heard that word lately? You've got to be anointed for this. You've got to have the anointing for that. Well, these passages of scripture here teach us that we could actually aspire and then seek to achieve the qualities to become an elder or a pastor. That's right. It has to do with the pursuit of godliness in your life. But notice, he says, you must be. And these lists are something then for all men who are aspiring to be leaders in the church, to look at very carefully and to examine yourself. What I'm trying to do, if I can get it up here for a young man in leadership, is to begin a school for leaders, to train young men in the word of God and to help them to build their character. Because this list, not one thing listed here except manager and home is given as an ability that is required to be a deacon. It isn't what you do other than being a good manager that makes you qualified for a deacon. It's what you are. It has to do with character. Let's look at them. I'm divided into different areas. First of all, I divided into personal life or character. This listing. And let's look at the positive aspect first. He says you must be worthy of respect. This is a man of dignity. It's one who has earned and deserves respect because of his godly lifestyle. He lives an orderly life. He's recognized as a decent person. As a well-ordered person. He's a person who always wears ties and coats when he comes to church. I had to put that in for Tillman and Kenny. But he's recognized as a well-ordered person. He's a man of dignity. You look at him and he stands out. You see, he doesn't stand out by what he says, or, but rather how he lives. That's the idea. You don't choose a person just because you like him. Choose a person according to this here because he's a person of respect, a person of dignity. Then secondly, he says, holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Now remember, these are requirements for a deacon. Holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Simply saying that he lives what he believes. This implies that he knows the word of God. And he lives that word out. The mystery of the faith. 
has the idea of an unfolding understanding knowledge of the word of God. It's progressive revelation. It implies that a person who's a deacon studies his Bible. He attends places or opportunities to hear the Bible taught. He knows the word of God. Then he lives out his life according to it. That's what the text says. Holding with a clear conscience. He's not a hypocrite. He, doesn't, he isn't afraid of somebody coming to his office to see how he operates. Doesn't, he isn't afraid of somebody looking at the books to see how he fixes the books. He isn't afraid to see how he is treating his employees. He holds the faith with a clear conscience. He knows the word and he's doing his best to live it out in his life. That's a deacon. Well, that's deacon material. Thirdly, he's beyond reproach. Now, that's a tough one. Now, this is the same one of an elder, by the way. This is also true of an elder. Beyond reproach. This means to be without justifiable grounds for accusation of improper behavior or any kind of behavior, especially with respect to the traits here. In other words... I'm saying justifiable because people will attack a godly man without justification. Just to get at him because they're living a lifestyle they don't like and so they bring all kinds of things. I'm talking about charges that stick. No one should have a doubt of where, of where this person stands with regard to the virtues described in this passage. No one has any grounds to call him a hypocrite. He's beyond reproach. Now right away I hear some of you saying, boy, we can never get no more deacons in Calvary Bible Church. No. None of us are perfect. God is working in and through. All of us are under construction, as the little sign says. But we have to have an intention to have these things. You understand what I'm saying? And a desire to do it. When I first started in my ministry, I was to go through these lists. And each one I had a scale, one to ten. And I would go down that list and find out where I rated myself every year. I did it on a yearly basis. And then Dr. Jen gets say, well, that's all right for you to do it. Now you've got to get somebody who knows you to do it. And say, the best person to do that is your wife. Boy, I had to pray and fast a long time. <laughs> but one of the best experiences that me and Nancy had was for me to go through that listing with her. And for her to frankly tell me what she thought about me as a person. Now, for those of you who knew my history, that was quite a thing to do at a certain time in Nancy's life. It really was. But God used that in a way to encourage growth in my life. And without going through that with Nancy and all of the situations with Nancy, I would not be the person I am today. So I thank God for that. Man, we need to be able to put ourselves out if we're going to serve God, if we want to really be a lead in the church for anybody. That's why I say to you again, you could come, well, no. I can say you could come to my house anytime. You don't got to knock, but be better knock because sometimes, you know, I don't wear all my clothes all the time. <laughs> but my life is open to you. Any questions, anything you want to ask me, you could even challenge me in any of my, listen to this carefully, and I said it and I mean this, you could challenge me openly if you see anything in my life that you think is contrary to scripture. I don't say, well, I just don't like the way you wear this tie or the way you factory. you don't wear it. I don't talk about that kind of stuff. 
I'm talking about things that have to do with character. If you have anything that you think, that you notice in my life that is contrary to the word of God, in fact, you are obligated. You are obligated to bring that to my attention. Because my desire, as well as all the desires of our men, I believe with service, are to be godly men who are to be models and examples of Jesus Christ. That's what he's talking about here. That's what he's talking about here. But we're always trying to build on these things beyond reproach. Now there's a negative one. Something we're not supposed to do. 1 Timothy 3.8. He says, not double-tongued. This means there's one, a deacon cannot be one who, does, uh, who says one thing to one person and says something to another person just to get their favor. Cannot be one who, does, who talks out of both sides of his mouth. You have people like that. Come to you and you talk. Boy, he's so sincere. Talking to you. Yeah, yeah, I hear this. Yeah. Go talk to somebody else who disagrees with you. Yeah, boy, I believe the same thing. I believe the same thing. just told me he don't believe it, you know. But he wants to get the favor of that person. He wants to get in. What's the word today? Sucking up? You know what that is? That's what they do. You cannot have a man who sucks up to some people and not to others. That's what he's saying. Now, this gives some idea of the kind of ministry is involved, too. As we'll see later on, it gives the idea that these men have interaction with the congregation. And so he says, you can't go to one house, say something about somebody, and go to another house and say something else about him. That's hypocrisy. That's what we call click-mongering. Do you know what click-mongering is? When you have a little click here, and you'll do anything to stay with this group, and you go over here, you have another little group, and you get another clip, but you want to stuck up to them because they can do things for you, you know what I mean? So you hold it here, but you don't hold it there. It's click-mongering. You cannot have a person to be a deacon like that. Not double-tongued. Now here's another one. I really had to pray over this one. Not addicted to much wine. <laughs> Not addicted or to much wine. Eh? You could be addicted a little bit. No, 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 no. This is also one that applies to, this is one also applies to pastors as well. No, really, now this is one that a lot of people have a little problem with, with me, because I tried to interpret scripture for what it is. This really says you should not become drunk with wine. You shouldn't be addicted to wine. Now we could give that a broader scope. You shouldn't be addicted to any kind of thing that clouds your mind, your intellect. You shouldn't even be addicted to food. But he's not talking about food here. He's talking about wine. And getting drunk. So he is talking about being addicted to intoxicating liquor or anything else. All right? That's what he, now, it doesn't say you cannot drink a glass of wine once every seven years. <laughs> you see, that's the, that's, the, that's the, what do you call it? Not jamboree. What do you call it? Seven years. Jubilee. Jubilee. I say jamboree, jubilee. You know, you get free in the seventh year to do anything so you can drink a cup of wine. He's saying that, that a deacon should not be in a person who's, intox who's addicted to intoxicating uh, uh, alcohol or liquor, everything else. Now, we've taken the position as far as we as elders are concerned that we will abstain. We would not even do 
the, the, the social drink cup. We've taken that position as elders, as pastors, because we want to be examples and models. That doesn't mean if we come to your place for dinner and you have a cup of wine, we're going to disenfranchise you. Because this doesn't teach that. Do you understand what I'm saying? But remember, how does this addiction begin? How does it begin? One drink. That's all. Right. Begins, exactly, begins with one drink. That's all. And so we would like to encourage abstinence, of course. Then it goes on. It says, not fond of sordid gain. Now, these are some of the King James terms here, of course. This is also true of elders, by the way. Also true of elders. This simply means that you're not inclined to gaining wealth through dishonest or disgraceful means. Especially using the ministry to do that. Gaining wealth by ungodly or unchristian means disqualifies a person to be a leader in the church. I don't care how you do it. Charge more than you should as a retailer. Lie when you're making out customs, forms to bring things in. That's dishonest. That's sordid gain. See? Not paying your employees what you should so you could make more for yourself. That's dishonest gain. That's sordid gain. You do not take financial advantage of another person. That's what it means. I could stay on this one, but I, I remember something that my, one of my professors told me in our seminary, Dr. Howard Hendricks. He says, well, we better move on because it's too convicting. So let's move on because it's too convicting. But no, let me come back. One of the areas I believe that the church is really uh, dishonoring this text is the way that we have commercialized Christianity. Everybody's just selling books, books, books. Donate this, I'll give you this. No, you're not donating. You're paying for it. You see, you're paying for it. And we have Christians today who are selling their spiritual gifts for money. God has given me a gift, but I'm not going to give you that gift unless you pay me for it. I could give you all kinds of illustrations, but one, I wanted to get a speaker down here. A speaker who really had his beginning here. Now he's an international speaker. When he's come down here, man, he's a grab any effort, anything to come down here. Now... Upfront, $10,000, and I got to pay for three other people, a secretary, PR person, something else as well. I say thank you, but no thank you. Larry Ford is coming here. I said, Larry, what about financial arrangements? It's my brother, uh, we gave that to the Lord just a love offering. I said, well, you're the kind of man that we want. That's why I believe it should be done, you see? Not guilty of sordid gain. Then he goes on now. Qualities relative to family life. He says, the husband of one wife. That's the King James. But most of the other translations since then comes out and, and translated this way. A one woman man. By the way, this is also true for pastors or elders as well. A one woman man or the husband of one wife. 
Now you see, the problem with this interpretation is this. In the Greek, the word for husband could also be translated man. And the word for wife could also be translated woman. Those are legitimate translations. And so it's the immediate context that determines the meaning of the word in that context. So if we translate the phrase then, a one-woman man, a deacon must be a one-woman man, then it would refer to what? An unmarried man. In other words, this was just saying in order to be, in other words, saying that a single man could be a deacon. Some extreme views are only single men, unless you are married and have children, but we'll come to that in a moment. He says, uh, if it's a one-woman man, then it refers to an unmarried man. So it would mean that this man, to be a deacon, could be single, but he must not be a womanizer. He cannot be a single man playing the field, every week going out with another woman. You see what I'm saying? He cannot be that kind of a person. That's what he's talking about. If he's a single man, you cannot be a womanizer. But now if you translated husband of one wife, now you get all kind of trouble. First of all, it would mean that a deacon must be a married man. He must be a married man. Now remember now, this also stays with the true of the pastor. In this case say whatever is true of the deacon is true of the pastor so he's saying that you would not be able to be a pastor unless you are married if this is true then we would say that a man must be faithful to his wife and not a womanizer either although he's married in other words the affections of a deacon as well as a pastor must be centered exclusively on his wife and if there's any problems there infidelity unfaithfulness whatever flirting a man is not qualified to be a pastor or to be a deacon. Now, some today, because of the, uh, because of the uh, pervasiveness of po pornography on the internet now, even includes that. Because we have, in, we have men who are addicted to pornography on the internet and they have abandoned their wives. They even go take that in here. Some even says, of course, and we, this is according to, to the text, it prohibits... Polygamy. Deacon must be a married man or a, a, a man who is married only to one wife. Some like to say at a time. So uh, it means it prohibits polygamy. Now, this would also prohibit a man who has been divorced and remarried from becoming a deacon. If you take this view. Now this is a, what we call an extreme view, but it is a, rule, a view. A man who has been divorced and remarried would not be able to be a pastor or a deacon if you take this view. Now the reasoning behind this is usually that divorce represents a failure in the home. So that even though a man may be forgiven for the sin involved in divorce, he remains permanently disqualified for leadership in a congregation. He may be forgiven and all of that, but... Because he's not above reproach anymore, he will not be able to be a leader in the church. That's the position of some. Now, this is another extreme view. I'm trying to give you all these so you could see reason why there's so much problems in churches of how we allow persons to become on, on, the, on the different boards. And I'll, I'll give you a solution to that in a moment. Another view includes everything I've just said. 
but it extends the prohibition to any second marriages, even widowers. In other words, even though the Bible says it's okay for a person to marry again if their spouse has died, this view says that's not true. I'm sorry, if that wouldn't be, uh, that would not allow a man who is in that position to be a pastor or a deacon because he's been married more than once, so he's not the wife of one woman. You see what I'm saying? In fact, uh, I had a tremendous Greek, uh, Greek uh, uh, teacher at Dallas Seminary. He's an outstanding teacher. He goes all over preaching and everything else. And his wife died, and he was an elder. And as soon as she died, he resigned from eldership because he held his position. This is a Greek scholar now. He held his position. That this text says a wife of a man, a husband of one wife means that you should only be married once, even though your spouse died. Now, what is my position? Doesn't mean too much, but what is my position? I believe this is saying that a man, single or married, must be free from any promiscuity or illicit relationships regarding the opposite sex to, disc, to qualify to become a deacon or an elder. In other words, whether you are married or not, you have to have a pure life, sexually speaking, morally speaking. No illicit relationships at all. No womanizing at all. That's what I believe the text is teaching there. All right? Now, as he goes on, he deals with something else. Now, tonight we're going to look into some other aspects of that. If you want to come out, you could ask questions with that one. But then he moves on. He moves on to the wife now. He goes to the children. Now, I want you to understand this. This is the word of God. Do you believe that? God is concerned about the character of those who lead his flock. Why is that? He is the chief shepherd. He's also the good shepherd. What did he do? He shed his blood for his flock. The most precious possession God has on earth is his people, purchased with his own blood. And so he wants to know that those who are caring for his flock are the right kind of people. Now let me give you a real crass illustration of that. Lord, should I do this? In days gone by, days are harems. You know what a harem is? Right? A king, a ruler would have many, like Solomon for instance. But then... He wanted people to guard those women from other men. So do you know what the rulers used to do for the protectors of his harem? He made them, let me give you a decent word, eunuchs. Right? Why? Because he wanted men to care for his possessions that he could trust. And if you get eunuchs in there, if you don't know what eunuchs mean, go look it up. All right, you know what you mean, right? <laughs> and they know if the eunuchs are guarding them, hey, they're pretty safe, right? <laughs> now, let's bring that over here. God is concerned with his under-shepherds. And he's saying, these are the kind of people that I want to lead the flock that I purchase with my own blood. And he goes into detail. That's why I have no qualms. I don't have any concerns about going over this with you in detail. Because that's my role as a teacher. To teach you. Not what other people say or what other people do. But what I believe the Bible says. You see. But let's go on. 
Concerning his children and household, he says they must, be, he must, they must be good managers of their children and their own household. This is also true of elders. This is the only place where any kind of ability is mentioned. And that's the ability to manage. And he doesn't begin with managing the church. He begins with managing your home. If a man cannot manage his own home, he should not, must not become an elder or a deacon. Clear as that. The emphasis here in this text, though, for deacons, has to do with control and discipline in the home. You just don't allow your children to go where they want to go, do what they want to do, and wear what they want to wear. I see some young girls today who come from Christian homes, and I wonder, really, if their parents are Christians. I mean, you know, you don't got to imagine anything anymore. I'm, I'm talking about Christian, children, Christian young people now. You know, there's, <laughs> there's some kind of light you should hide sometimes. But we have, I hope you all could read this, this little uh, uh, parable, not parable, whatever. There's certain lights should, that should only shine in your home or with your husbands. But we have young girls today who are shining their lights all around for everyone to see. You understand what I'm saying? All they have to do is buy a little about a half yard or quarter yard more material <laughs> and they'll be all right. But I spoke to a parent about it. says, well, you know, that's my girl. She's 15 now. She could make up her own mind. That's not managing your own children the way they should be. You understand what I'm saying? So what he's saying here is, when you think about a man to be a deacon or a pastor, don't only look at him. Look at his wife. Look at his children. Now we're in trouble. The pickings are getting slim. <laughs> but now when he goes to elders, it becomes even more severe. It says with elders, they must control them with dignity. Now that's parallel to the passage we just read for deacons. But then he goes on. He says that if you are going to be an elder or pastor, your children also must be believers and are not living an immoral or rebellious life. Now listen to this. Now I really tried to do all kinds of things to find another interpretation for this. He says, if any man is above reproach, talk about an elder, the husband of one wife, having children who believe are not accused of dissipation or rebellion. Now that's a strong thing. This is saying that a pastor must, if they have children, those children must be Christians. That's what it, look at the text. Now as I said, I, and me with a lot of other people who know Greek, was trying to find loopholes. For this. Because you can also say must be faithful. Must have faithful children. And sometimes that means faithful to the parents. And I try to adopt that one. But I can't do that with good conscience. That's twisting and turning the scriptures. I believe this is what the scripture says. An elder. Now this isn't required of the deacons. It's required of the pastor. His children must be. But here's the problem though with that. And we can talk about this tonight. Suppose you have a baby child two three years old and that child is not a Christian does that disqualify him see what I'm saying 
These are the kind of things you've got to think about when you come to Scripture like this. This is why you need godly men who know the word of God to be leaders of your people. Otherwise, they will allow all kinds of polis to come in that has nothing to do with the word of God. You need men who know the word of God. As I said, many scholars have tried to find loopholes in the Greek. You know you like to go to the Greek. That would make the text say that Paul is referring to children being faithful to the parents because the word can be interpreted in that fashion. At least one interpretation. But the consensus of scholars agree that's not what he's saying at all. At all. This is just a high level of qualifications for men of God. Now this is really a tough one for me. It really is. But I have to accept it for what it is. All right. Let's move to on. It says in verse 10, concerning their appointment. Now, how are deacons appointed? It says that they must first be tested. And if they prove to be beyond reproach, then they can serve. Tested in these things that we have just talked about here. It should be examined in some way. See, now... We are looking for five deacons. And I made this up some years ago when I first came. It has all of the qualifications we have here. This is the application form or the nomination form because the way we set up here, our congregation, is to nominate certain men, the elders are to look it over, and then approve one way or the other. So all I'm saying to you is that make sure that you know the person well before you make a nomination. Now, we have some other things added to this from a, if you look at it, this is the form you got here. You, you, uh, you put, if you're going to nominate someone, you put your name in it, put the name of the nominee, but not before you talk to that person. Don't put his name here unless you got his approval. You understand what I'm saying? You must, first of all. And I encourage you, go down the list with them. What do you think about this? I know this about you, but I don't know that. We have them all listed here. We have qualities in relation to personal character, just like we have here, qualities relative to family life. Now, we have put something else on here. Number C, qualities relative to church involvement. This is the church policy. Actively involved in the ministry. You want people in actively. A regular uh, participant in the services, Sunday or Wednesday, whatever services you have. These are requirements because we believe that you're going to become a leader of God's people then you should be an example to God's people. You should be involved in the ministry. You should be supporting the ministry. You should be true to these qualifications. It says you must be tested. The testing allows both the potential deacon and the congregation along with the elders to determine suitability for service. Simply meaning it's the same thing with pastors or elders. Paul talks about the Holy Spirit placing men in the assembly and the assembly recognize them by their character, their ministry, their gifts, and so on. These are the individuals that you nominate. Not just because I like him, I want this person to do that, or if I know he's a, he can fight for me. You don't want that kind of a thing. You have to look for quality men because the chief shepherd, that's what Jesus calls, that's what Jesus is called, Peter calls Jesus the chief shepherd. In other words, he's a senior pastor. All right, he's a senior pastor. Now, one of the amazing things about, uh, uh, about deacons, there's no job description for deacons in the Bible. 
There's no job description. There are job, there's a clear job description for pastors and elders, but not for deacons. Not stated in scripture. And so it could say generally, their ministry is, uh, 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 that they would be responsible for all work related to the care of the assembly, not otherwise done by the elders, but delegated by them. I'm going to give you the biblical validation for that tonight as we do our study. You're going to see it's clearly brought out in the scripture that deacons came on as the leaders thought that they needed them. We'll see that in scripture. There's almost 30 years of church history. That is from Pentecost before we have any mentions of deacons being a part of the church leadership. We think that's the way it always was, but that's not true. It's apostles and elders who ruled the church almost for 30 years before deacons came on the scene. Come tonight, we'll go through the scriptures to show that. <clears throat> and so the relationship to elders. I believe that the scripture shows that deacons are co-workers with elders. They are enablers of the elders. Deacons are not the servants of elders or pastors, but they are the servants like pastors are to the people of God to whom they minister on his behalf. Their position, that is the position of deacons, is not to be regarded as less important than that of the elders, but rather supportive thereof. Again, the scriptures bring that out very clearly. Deacons are to manage their designated areas of ministries just the way the elders manage theirs, but they are nonetheless subject to the elders in that the elders are responsible for the overall care of the assembly, both spiritual and otherwise. That's the teaching of scripture. That's the teaching of scripture, and we'll bring that out tonight as well. Now, sometimes we tweak that a little bit and get a different thing, but that's the teaching of scripture. Now, what is the reward? Verse 13 tells us. He says, for those who have served well as deacons, obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. This is a beautiful statement as to the reward for faithful service by deacons. Let me read you a quote from, again, from some of my professors at Dallas. He says, quote, Those who fulfill their servant roles faithfully gain two things. First, an excellent standing before fellow Christians who understand and appreciate the beauty of humble, selfless, Christ-like service. And second, great assurance or confidence and boldness in their faith in Christ Jesus. Humble service, which lacks all the rewards the world deem important, becomes a true test of one's motives. Here, one discovers for himself whether or not his efforts are truly prompted by Christ-like spirit of selfless service. So when a deacon has indeed served well, his ministry builds confidence and sincerity of his own faith in Christ and his unhypocritical approach to God. He becomes a person who is stand out, standing out in the assembly for his godliness, his humility, and his submission to Jesus Christ. That's what I believe the scripture teaches concerning the qualifications of deacons. But we're not finished yet. One more question. Here it is. And it always has to do with women. Boy, you always have a trouble with women. I don't know why. It is. Can women serve in the official position of a deacon? How many of you say Yes. Everybody's scared that we are at the hand now. All right. Let me read the passage for you again. The only place where it's mentioned. Maybe. Same passage. Look at it again. Likewise, must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued, 
not given to much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre, holding the mystery of the faith in pure conscience, and let those also first be proved, then let them use the office of a deacon being found blameless. Notice now, even so must their wives be grave, not slanderous, sober, faithful in all things. Now notice the word, what? Wives. Now here is the problem of interpretation. Number one, the same demand is not given for the pastors or elders. Nothing is said about their wives other than the elder got to be the boss. That's right. But now if this is taken to refer to the wives of deacons, then in order for you to qualify as a deacon, we got to look at your wife. What kind of woman is she? Is she pure? She slanders? She gossips? All that kind of stuff. So it becomes another qualification for, well not another because it's written in the text. If his word means wives, it means that we also have to examine the wife of the person who wants to be a deacon. Do you see that? But now as I mentioned before, this word wives can also be translated women. And so the other translated has it this way. Women must likewise be dignified not malicious gossips, and so on. Now, if then that is what is meant here, it is women and not wives, this could possibly allow a woman to serve as a deacon. But now the problem with many of the scholars is that, boy, you know, it's really funny how that is interjected. Because notice now, verse 11, even so must their wives be grave, not slanderous, sober, faithful, let the deacons, it seems to slip that in there and then it goes back again to talk to the deacons. So that's why many say you've got to be talking then about women who are deacons. But then others says no, talking about the wives of deacons. Now, either one of those interpretations could be correct. Either one of them. Because the word could be translated in that fashion. It could mean either wife or women. Again, this is where it comes for godly men who know the word of God to be leaders of the church. Because it appears that each church has to make a choice of these interpretations. You see? By what I can understand at this point, Calvary has opted to take the choice that there cannot be any women deacons. All right? But I just want you to see it is not just a clear-cut thing. And I have to teach the Bible. I cannot teach just what other people are saying. These are the options that we have. Now we'll talk more about this tonight. I keep saying that because we could fight better in the night. <laughs> Here's my position on that myself. If the role of the deacon is taken as being one of service, not of ruling, under the supervision of pastors, then there's no biblical reason why women cannot serve as deacons. I'm talking about an official position. Most of our women serve as deacons already, as far as gift is concerned, but not as far as position is concerned. And we've got to make a difference between those things. If the role of the deacon is taken as being one of service, not of ruling, under the supervision of the pastors, then there's no biblical reason why women cannot serve as deacons under the supervision of the man deacons. The word deaconess is never used. Even though Phoebe, a woman, is called a deacon, 
It's not the female term that is used, it's the masculine. Phoebe was seen as a deacon of the church. But the word deaconess is not used. Implying here again that if she was serving, she was serving under the supervision of the male deacons. These are some of the issues that we have to look at when we're looking at people to lead the people of God. Tonight we're going to ask, have, answer more questions if we have time. We go into another message tonight. But here is the important thing. You people here, I'm included, have been purchased with the blood of Jesus Christ. You are God's most precious possession on earth. He just doesn't leave you or me to anyone to take care of. He wants the best when it comes to character. So be sure that when you nominate, now don't be afraid either, mind you, to nominate, but make sure that when you do, you are following the word of God as best as you can. You know, we just had a big election in the United States. Some people say, we get the kind of government we deserve. That's true in the church. If we don't choose properly, prayerfully, using the word of God as our guide, we get the kind of government we deserve. But if we use the word of God and we pray and see how much God is concerned about us, God will give us his mind. He will do it. Then we will get the kind of government God wants us to have. And that's what we're praying for. Man, I say to you, you should be building all the times on your character, on the virtues that are outlined here, all the time. Because it could be that you could be a leader of God's people. You could aspire by getting out of your life right now Anything that is dishonest or immoral or impure. Anything that is selfishly motivated. You could get rid of all of those things. You can begin right now. And God will equip you and enable you to be a leader of his people. And I'm praying that that will happen here. That's why we have as our goal to lead everybody to maturity. And some to leadership. Please bow with me in a word of prayer. Take a few moments of quiet meditation before we close. <clears throat> I know we've looked at some very solemn things today, but that is the word of God. And I encourage you to come out this evening if you want to have further discussions on these things. But man, I address you again. I ask you to recommit your life to Jesus Christ and really and sincerely ask him to equip you to be a leader of his people if that's his will. But beyond that, or in addition to that, ask him right now to help you to implement all of these virtues, to do whatever is necessary to get rid of the weak areas of your life in these areas, and to work at putting in the right virtues as listed here. Just pray that you might become a man of God. 
a man of God that everybody will be able to see immediately by the way you live, by what you say. Father, thank you for your word. Use it, we pray, to accomplish your will in our lives. And all of God's people said, Amen.